Welcome, fellow traveler. You are now listening to the Tent Theology Podcast. Each week, we have a tent talk where we pursue the renewing of the Christian social and political imagination. Welcome, friends. My name is Chris Marshan. I am one of the co-hosts here at the Tent Theology Podcast. And today's episode is a tent talk interview portion featuring Dr. Kristen Cobez Dumay, professor of history at Calvin University in Michigan. Our conversation is a talk on her new book, Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. We recorded our interview before the U.S. national election, but uh, the subject matter remains as prevalent as ever. Dr. Dumay is a is a historian, and one of her other books is also called A New Gospel for Women. You can find out more information about her at kristendumay.com. We hope you enjoy her talk. One of the initial questions is, is one, what is your own political heritage? And so how would you, how would you answer that? Yeah, so I grew up in a small town in northwest Iowa, and Sioux Center, Iowa, and I grew up in a Dutch immigrant community and uh, a very um, kind of distinctively confessionally reformed uh, community. And I didn't really have much of a political sense growing up. And I thought, I think as most people tend to think that I, I was pretty moderate because, you know, your own beliefs, you tend to center. Uh, only later did I come to realize that that county is one of the reddest counties in the country. And that, in fact, my views were very uh, conservative in terms of politics and in terms of religion. Um, so uh, that was my religious formation. I I, um, I kind of grew up around um, mostly Republicans. I remember I went to a Christian school and I remember, um, I guess I had a bit of a rebellious streak because as a seventh grader, this was during the um, 1988 presidential election, I think it would have been. And uh, I felt that my, my history teacher was um, unfairly biased against Democrats. And so I became an ardent Dukakis supporter that year. <laughs> And, uh, and I was the only one in the school. And so I think that gives you a sense of, of where I came from, um, at, at least uh, growing up. Do you feel like growing up in that environment and then as a young woman, did you feel under attack? Did your parents say, listen, Kristen, you can't you can't be doing this. How was yeah. how were how you perceived within the community in that sense? Uh, so I, you know, I had um, one sister and two brothers. I grew up kind of sandwiched between two brothers, and I, I didn't feel all that constrained. Uh, really, the only clear pre- gendered prescriptions were around um, religious authority. So I went to a church that um, you, you know had no um, women in positions of leadership, um, pastors, elders, or deacons, um, in fact, or ushers when I was growing up. That only changed in recent years, only the usher part. Um, all the other, all the actual offices are still closed to women. And so that was very clear to me. Um, I could imagine in a different life, given my interests in religion and um, theology, that I may well have gone on to seminary uh, if I had been in a community that supported that. That was very clearly kind of closed, even though my denomination, the Christian Reformed Church was open by that time to women in, in leadership positions, my home church was not. So, um, so I think that that was clear. Otherwise, you know, I just kind of grew up with um, the idea that feminism was a bad thing. 
women shouldn't kind of step out of their place too much. Um, you know, there's kind of negative comments. She's too into her career or, you know, just kind of, um, putting you know, ambitious women kind of on notice. I, I definitely picked that up. At the same time, I grew up in a family that really valued the intellectual life. And that was absolutely held up as an ideal for all of us kids. And so I, I was very much encouraged and supported in my intellectual ambitions. And so um, since that's really where my heart was that I didn't feel constrained, I felt really encouraged and supported by my parents and when I went to a Christian college as well by my professors. Yeah, so, so in that sense, uh, in some ways, church leadership wasn't encouraged, but then you have found your way. I mean, it, it takes a long time to have a career in academia, right? It does. It does. Yeah. And I, you know, I think sometimes now, uh, as I also grew up in a context that really, you know, reformed uh, community where you are supposed to serve God in all of life, right? Not just preachers, pastors, or missionaries, but we are all trying to, uh, you know, to honor God and be faithful in our, in our spheres of activity. And so, you know, I definitely was shaped by this idea of Christian scholarship and you do your, your intellectual work, your academic work in service of the church in service of the kingdom. And so I think this ideal of Christian scholarship really, um, you know, pushed me in certain directions to have a more engaged public role. And in the end, now through my scholarship, I do feel like I, I am uh, preaching just a little bit uh, as an academic, you know, addressing some of these issues outside of uh, church structures, but, but really engaging many of the issues that I would have on the inside as well. So our second main question is, <clears throat> when did you become politically aware? But I want to ask that in a slightly different way. You, in, in a sense, are, are, are a historian. I don't know how, uh, is that your actual, like, what's your title uh, at, at Calvin? Yeah, I'm a professor of history. Professor of history. How do you see your role, either within general society or within the church as a historian? And, and, and I'm framing that within the political sphere. So like, how do you speak to the way that our society operates? What, what is your, how do you perceive your own vocation in that sense? Uh, the most important thing that I can do is give us a sense for how things came to be how the current constellation of issues, the current set of options that we seem to have politically in terms of gender, in terms of, of values, religion, how this present formation, which very quickly starts to to feel inevitable, even God ordained sometimes, uh, really is is of rather recent creation, and you know, recent is relative as a historian. But my my fundamental role, I think, is just to demonstrate as carefully as possible, with as much evidence as possible, how how things came to be, um, how we got to our present moment, um, and then as soon as we start asking, so what should we be doing? Where should we be going? Um, when it comes to those questions, I'm an amateur, right? I I have, I, I can, I, I can speak with much more authority about how we got to this point and with much more trepidation about what that means for where we should be going. And that's where I think we need to bring in. I'm a huge fan of the liberal arts. I'm a huge fan of interdisciplinary work of the body of Christ coming together around these questions. Um, but my role as a historian really is to examine how we, how we got to this place. Well, thank you for offering that. And, and that segues us into talking about your book, Jesus and John Wayne. So uh, I want to talk about that, that some of your research involved and all the, the sources that maybe you had to gather and um, immerse yourself in. 
But first, I want to ask a very, very important question right from the start, which is, what's your favorite John Wayne film? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I was I did not set out to write a book about John Wayne. I'm as surprised as anybody else that this is where I ended up. Um, and of course, the book isn't really about John Wayne, but I grew up watching John Wayne movies. And my favorite absolutely was True Grit. I don't know if that's just the one that came most frequently. On, I think it was just the one that came most frequently on on, you know, the, the whatever channels we had. But um, I, I thought it was funny and heroic. And, you know, we had a strong female lead and uh, dramatic rattlesnake bites. And I don't know, it was always my favorite. There you go. Uh, so you said that you're surprised. Yes. Does that mean that my, my, when I hear things like that, I, I think, oh, so maybe your publisher chose this title. Is that? Oh, no, 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 I did. Um, so I was surprised that. Um, so when I first started researching Christian views on masculinity, evangelical views, this was actually more than 15 years ago when I when I when I first started playing around with this. Um, it was the John Eldridge Wild at Heart years. And right when I picked up that book, I was immediately surprised because evangelicals, of course, uh, self-identify as Bible-believing Christians, right? right? That's right at the heart of their identity. And that is who they are. And it sets them apart from other Christians, supposedly, right? Who aren't quite so Bible-believing. Uh, and yet when I was reading these books on Christian masculinity, there were not many Bible verses in there and certainly not um, very good hermeneutical strategies at all. Instead, for their views of Christian manhood, they looked to Hollywood. They looked to Mel Gibson's William Wallace. Uh, they looked to you know movies about cowboys and soldiers, and and John Wayne just kept popping up. And I thought, you know, seriously, uh, this is our model of Christian masculinity, and and so that's really kind of the surprising the surprising part. It was my research that presented this, and so I just at a certain point in the writing process, I started to pull together the John Wayne thread. Uh, which is a great way to kind of, you know, show the the cultural sources of this ideology, and um, and to show the connection between conservative politics, secular conservatism, and this quote unquote Christian manhood. And so, so no, I came up with the Jesus and John Wayne title. Um, but yes, I, I did not set out to write a book about John Wayne, and I did worry a little bit about, you know, the, a certain generation of men who might pick the the book up, um, expecting one thing. And so, the subtitle kind of sets the record straight. I think what kind of a book it is. <laughs> so, uh, my 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 grandma years ago, uh, she had a book, the Duck Dynasty Bible. Yes, yes. And, it, it... <laughs> Somebody gave it to her. And so maybe maybe that could be the mistake. You know, some guy picks it up and like, well, I've, I've been waiting years for someone to write the, the John Wayne Bible. I've, I've actually heard exactly that. Somebody confessed to me that uh, that she was at a store and saw somebody pick up the book and was super excited about Jesus and John Wayne. And she had to break the news. You know, I don't think it's really what you're looking for. And uh, yes. Uh, so but truth and advertising. It what need, it's what they need. It's what they might need. Exactly. So, <laughs> but yeah, it's Duck Dynasty Bible. I, I think that got a mention in this book at some point too. That's That's exactly the kind of thing I'm talking about. So I cannot speak so much for Stephen. Uh, Stephen, he's he's this hybrid Canadian yeah. and Irish. No, he's not Irish. What am I talking? About? I always I always think his accent sounds Irish. He'll, <laughs> he'll laugh when he hears this if he listens to this episode. Uh, but you know, he sounds British. He sounds Canadian. So I can't really speak for what what Stephen knows 
about John Wayne, but my co-host, Sean, the other co-host, and he has his own podcast, he does other things. Uh, John Wayne was a huge presence in his life, like with his own father. For myself, it was he, he wasn't such a huge influence, but I have an uncle uh, who I believe I, I would I probably need to call him up and say, hey, hey, Uncle Stan, uh, do you still have all those John Wayne DVDs? Because I remember going to his house and he just had a shelf like like for me, I have all my N.T. Wright books or my C.S. Lewis <laughs> books or something like that. His shelf was full of John Wayne DVDs. Yes. Yes. And, I've know, heard so many stories of, yes, the, the John Wayne, you know, the uncle, the dad, the, you know, that, that this, this John Wayne mystique, it's not just, uh, you know, a symbol. It's not just a, a name that pops up in these books. It, it is a kind of, you know, it's a symbol and it's, and it's, you know, a kind of value system. And, and there's an affection there, a real affinity among a lot of men and a lot of Christian men. Yeah. So, so, as I was reading your book and I'm thinking about approaching how to talk to you about this, I feel like there's at least three interviews in this. There, there's an interview just about film because I'd like to talk about American film and, um, and I'll get to that in just a second here. Then there's the evangelical culture, like what, you know, how the church sees biblical manhood, how the church sees masculinity. And so there's that response. And then there's the political sphere. Yeah. Uh, and so I'm going to do my best to, to be faithful to our podcast. My, my other podcast is on art and faith. And so I, oh, okay. I, I'll, I would gravitate more towards the, um, to the film, filmic aspects. So I, I do want to say this, though. I never got John Wayne. I, I thought, who's this doofus that showed up on the sphere who <laughs> thinks he knows everything and can boss everybody around? Mm -hmm. I was always a Jimmy Stewart guy. Hmm. And I feel like there's something to Jimmy Stewart and maybe even our generation's Jimmy Stewart, which is Tom Hanks, you could say. Yeah. yeah. Which is a guy who's a little bit clueless, but at the end of it, he actually wants to do what's best for everybody and is willing to give up some of his own desires for the sake of everybody else. I, I, Maybe maybe there's a sequel in this book. Is there is there a Jimmy Stewart and Jesus sequel? Is oh, I, you know, I I wish there were. I, I would like there to be. Uh, and and what I can say is, I think accurately that in all, I I read dozens, probably hundreds, at least at least more than a hundred books on on Christian manhood. Jimmy Stewart did not come up. Um, Tom Hanks did not come up either. And, you know, John Wayne is kind of the, the nostalgic vision. So, uh, you know, he was, he was adored by conservatives generally by the 1970s already as this nostalgic, um, figure, you know, as this kind of throwback, um, masculinity and that in itself was a very political statement by the 1970s and 1980s. And then for evangelicals, he, he came to kind of symbolize that, but then he really gets kind of upgraded or downgraded as the case may be by the 2000s where, where that's where we have more of the, again, the Mel Gibson, um, and all the characters he plays and and kind of rougher tougher movies fight club is another one um so more of a, a kind of modern militant masculinity kind of takes hold but he still keeps popping up as this as this kind of touchstone as you know we all know that the icon of christian manhood of american manhood and christian manhood because this is really you know christian nationalism at work 
is John Wayne. Um, and so he continues to kind of shape the, uh, or ground this value system. Uh, even though, you know, you know, more contemporary um, models tend to be less restrained even than John Wayne and uh, more just outright militant. That, that's an interesting uh, thread throughout your book, which some people might read it and go, oh, I thought this was going to be more about John Wayne. And my argument would be, go read it again or, or maybe review <laughs> some of the chapters because he's there the whole time. Oh, he does. Yes. He <laughs> haunts the book. And I mean, that's what, that's what popped up in my research. I just kept running across him. And then, you know, and finally I was like, wait, you, you know, again, again. And, you know, so what does this mean? How does, what does he represent? And how does this, how, how is this kind of a, a thread that can, that can hold things together? So yes, he, he is there and he comes back very strong uh, in 2016, the the Trump election, uh, comparisons of Trump to John Wayne and, and Donald Trump stands for John Wayne America. And I mean, even as recently as the spring and summer with, um, you know, moves to in light of um, the Black Lives Matter movement to um, get rid of the, or to rename um, John Wayne Airport and to get rid of the John Wayne exhibit at USC and so on. Um, you know, this is still a, a political issue. And so Donald Trump is is tweeting out in defense of John Wayne. And uh, so again, this is it, it. The motif does run through up to our very present moment. I think maybe what I'm interested in, uh, and as I was reading, I, I have a file that I'm you know writing questions down in, but even in my office space here this morning, I have these post-it notes mm -hmm. and uh, I have all of these names that, you know, because there's, there's so many names that you mention, yeah. and what was disorienting or it was jarring for me was seeing so many names that I'm familiar with. And as, a, as an evangelical Christian, you know, growing up within those cultures, I mean, I'm very much a product of youth group culture. Um, I, I would say, I, you know, maybe a little bit different than yourselves. I grew up in coming of age in the mid 90s when Christian pop culture was becoming very, very prevalent, like especially music and, yeah. you know, even the, the rise of Christian movies and stuff, all of that. And so in the midst of that are all these names that I recognize. And, and it, I think what you've allowed us to do is to put on lenses and see them from a different angle. Like, I'll be honest. Uh, and and it, it's, funny, it's funny because different people have different perspectives. But when John Eldridge came on the scene, yeah, yeah. I was immediately annoyed. I was just <laughs> like, I don't like this. I'm going to go back to reading my C.S. Lewis books. Thank you very much. Um, and, but other people were just enthralled. Oh, you have to read this. And I kind of felt, do I really have to waste my time with this? But now what you've offered us is like, okay, so here is, here's part of the ideology. Here's part of the, the way that he, he rose up. Um, I, I guess maybe, can you describe for us, this, this, this goes into things a little bit too much, but how do you describe this rise of unabashed American masculinity within the church? Like, where do you begin to tell people about this? Yeah, I mean, I, I, you really have to go back to the the Cold War um, context, and I mean, in the book, I go back um, before that to kind of show. Uh, not even the roots of this ideology as much as I, I dip back into the 19th century, mostly to show 
a change, right? That yes, you have glimmers of it, but you have a lot of different uh, ideas of masculinity. You have different ideas of, even if you embrace a kind of militant masculinity, you don't always link that to militarism. Conservative Protestants did not always embrace Christian nationalism or militarism, right? So I really wanted to sketch out uh, very briefly, uh, things used to look differently. Uh, and it really isn't until the 1940s that we start to see things come into the alignment that we would recognize today with the uh, formation of the National Association of Evangelicals, which forms during the Second World War, the Good War, right? And, and they want to both um, kind of restake their claim on American culture. They felt that they had been marginalized and um, they, were, they were flourishing, but independently and on the kind of small scale, local scale, and they wanted to unite um, churches and schools and organizations to be more of a national presence, right? Um, and of course, Billy Graham really helped with uh, as, as the public face of this, this national uh, presence. And Billy Graham rose to fame as an evangelist, um, Youth for Christ evangelist during the Second World War and fully embraced this kind of Christian nationalism, that America is a Christian nation and we are doing good in the world. And the war effort is one of the ways that we're we're doing good. Um, so that's kind of when we start to th see things come into place. But then at, at, right after the Second World War, we have the rise of the Cold War. And that's when things really solidify. And so there you have an enemy, uh, communism, that was perceived to be anti-God, anti-family, and anti-American. And so conservative evangelicals who were just kind of restaking their claim on American society and politics just jumped at this chance and considered them, that they themselves had a unique role to play as the most faithful Christians in America, uh, that they could keep America Christian and keep America strong. And in the Cold War, that made perfect sense. Um, and, and, and in the Cold War, that required actual militarism, right? It, it required an active military, not just defense defense, but offense. Um, and so that's where things really um, come together. Now that um, they weren't all that different from a lot of other Americans at that time, right? This is cold, cold war consensus era. Uh, when they started to really distinguish themselves from other Americans, that was the 1960s. Um, we had the civil rights movement, the feminist movement and the anti-war movement all kind of start to lead many Americans to question this value system, to question American militarism, to question quote unquote traditional values. And, and that's when evangelicals especially dug in their heels and, and considered themselves the faithful remnant. And so this, this kind of militarism, gender traditionalism and strong defense of Christian America really moved to the center of their, their identity, their religious identity, cultural identity and political identity. So that's where, really where we have to go to for the roots. So our, our, our podcast, we, we, we are three men we joke that we all have beards and uh, re-bearded re white men. Mm -hmm. uh, when I grew up, I was always spoken of, like people always see, saw me differently. And they thought, you don't, you, don't, you don't respond, you don't behave like a typical man responds. And I never knew quite what to do with that. Uh, and as I've grown up and I've kind of come into more of how I understand myself as a, as a follower of Christ and, and, and politically, and I, and I, and I am all but a, a nonviolent pacifist. Yeah. And so in reading your book, I, I see, I, I see this opposite ideology and, and I've been figuring out what to do with it. Mm -hmm. 
Well, what I can say is, you know, there are um, always multiple discourses, multiple masculinities, multiple Christian masculinities. In fact, when I originally proposed this book, I had included a chapter on alternate uh, Christian masculinities, uh, right? Emphasizing fatherhood more in African-American communities. That's certainly a stronger emphasis and much less on militarism and certainly much less on Christian nationalism. Um, you know, this idea of servant leadership can feed into precisely the militarism that I'm uh, and kind of rigid patriarchy um, that that I'm tracking, but it can also diffuse that in other situations. So there are kind of multiple um, ways of imagining masculinity at any given moment and within any given community. Uh, and so I talk to a lot of men, I, I, I think kind of, of like yourself, who um didn't ever really identify with this more militant masculine ideal. Um, certainly those, so, you know, in the 1990s coming of age that, and in the 2000s, the Eldridge era. Um, and it was really fascinating just hearing their responses. Um, I, I quote one man in my book who said, you know, he always felt like a, a second-class Christian and a second-class man because he couldn't fit this ideal. Um, a lot of men ended up leaving the church over this, like feeling there was no place for them in their, you know, experience of the church, in their youth group culture, in their, you know, when the, the guys would go on a retreat and it would be this kind of fake let's, let's go climb rocks or, you know, shoot guns for the weekend. And like one guy wrote, you know, why, why can't we go to an art museum? Um, I really like art, you know? So a lot of men felt like this, that this is just not a space for me. There were other men though. I mean, some men embraced it. Many men, especially pastors, right? This was a path to power. This was kind of the thing to do. Um, but there were other men who really fascinated me who knew that they couldn't fit this ideal, but then internalized the, um, the reasoning that they were not really made to, to lead, not the way that alpha males were made to lead. And so they ended up kind of giving their authority over to or, or um, uh, you know, submitting to the authority of their pastors, of the men in politics, um, right, who really did exemplify this rugged, tough leadership that they knew they themselves would never really embody. Maybe their wives wouldn't let them get away from it, away with it, but maybe they just couldn't, that wasn't who they were. Um, but still, so even if they didn't live out these values personally, that doesn't mean that the ideology didn't nevertheless shape their ideals of Christian leadership, Christian manhood. And so it seemed like, you know, the guys who, you know, to quote their words, had the balls to lead people like Mark Driscoll, uh, people say like Donald Trump today, um, kind of had the right to do so. So there are different ways that I think men confronted this ideology, experienced it and responded to it. So one of the observations that I've made is regarding, let's say a lot of our, our are huge megachurch pastors or just prominent evangelical leaders, uh, if they don't give power away willingly, they will eventually give all of their power away uh, unwillingly. And, and that's, that's maybe my historical observation. I see it happen time and time again. Uh, my friends and I, my pastoral friends, I have this one pastor friend and, you know, it's like we, we text each other every time a new scandal breaks. We're yes. like, well, did you see this about Ravi Zacharias today? And, and so, yeah, again, I think I would contend if you don't willingly give power away to others, you will eventually give away your power. Um, what, what do you, how do you, how do you observe that in terms of 
the American male pastor as a symbol, as a symbol for power uh, in, in this. Yeah. What, how do you interpret that? Or what do you, what do you say about that? Yeah. So like I said, I started this research more than 15 years ago, but then I set it aside for a time um, for a couple of reasons. I had a lot going on. I was finishing my first book. Um, I also found what I was, what I was reading incredibly distressing. Um, and I wasn't sure how, how mainstream this was, right? Is this fringe? So am I going to be just, you know, um, shining this bright light on the darkest underbelly of American Christianity? And is that what I should really be doing as a Christian myself? Um, so those were some of the, the thoughts uh, going through my mind. And I set the, the project aside, always intending to pick it up at some point, but I didn't stop paying attention. I still kept kind of gathering sources and following many of the men who were promoting this militant masculinity. And so I watched over the next decade or so, how one after another became involved in scandals, abuse, of power and often sexual abuse, uh, either directly or indirectly by, um, by defending their friends who were directly implicated. And that's really the, the whole last chapter of the book um, chronicles this. And that is only a fraction of the cases that I tracked and, and gathered information on just because it, it became too unwieldy as a chapter and we had to cut some things out. Uh, it was originally twice as long. So um, um, all of which is to say, yes, this is a pattern. Um, how do we make sense of this? Uh, you know, I think that some of it is kind of an individual thing, I think, where uh, maybe narcissistic men are drawn to this profession because of the power that they, they see available to them. I think that's certainly part of the case. Um, but there's also the, um, the context that really seems to foster these abuses of power. And that's what was always more fascinating to me. Um, not the perpetrator necessarily. Um, they seem less interesting to me than the community of quote unquote, good Christians, respectable Christians, you know, salt of the earth people who end up doing some really horrifying things, blaming the victim, um, you know, defending and dismissing, uh, you know, claims against the abuser, very quick to forgive. And this wasn't just a one-time thing. This was a repeated pattern. And so I, I became really, really fascinated with, you know, what are the conditions that really foster these patterns of behavior uh, that we shouldn't really expect from Christians. And that's again, where I looked to history and understood ideas of patriarchal leadership, sexual abuse, blaming the victims, objectifying women, all of these things have a very long history and you don't have to look look hard in um, sermons and writings on, on gender and Christianity and, and power to, to see that, again, this is a long tradition we're dealing with here, deeply entrenched. So one of the things that you said was that you don't necessarily you, you give us the history and then you, you, you're not the one that comes along and assesses. <laughs> well, what I'm curious about, uh, as it, within the context of our podcast of trying to reimagine what it could look yeah. like, uh, what, what kind of conversations do you have with people where, where, I mean, you can answer this in a few ways. Where do you want American Christianity to head in the sense of male leadership of yeah. all pastoral leadership, what, what are some of the conversations you have or some of the hopes and dreams that you have? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm having a lot of these conversations right now. Uh, one thing I will say is, uh, first of all, I've, I've been really surprised at the reception of this book since it's um, um, 
since it's published um, four months ago now. Uh, I thought there'd be a lot of backlash. Um, there's been very little backlash, astoundingly little. Instead, so many conservative white evangelicals have embraced it. Um, you know, they've said some version of this is the story of my life and thank you for saying this. Um, and, and so that really caught me off guard and it's been a source of great encouragement and hope to me. That said, I also hear from very many people within conservative churches, organizations, leaders in these, in these institutions and organizations, um, they are saying thank you. And then they are also saying, we don't feel we can speak out, right? We're going to lose members. We're going to lose our positions. We're going to lose donors and subscribers. And so one thing that I would really like to see within uh, American Christianity and American evangelicalism more specifically is a lot more courage. I think that there has been a lot of quietism. People don't want to rock the boat. They don't want to talk politics. They don't want to offend people. They don't want to be perceived as judging people. And as a result, a lot of leaders and people in the pews have not been um, honest, have not been uh, speaking their conscience. And I think um, they have too often shown deference um, to um, people in power and oftentimes uh, to misuses of power. And, and so I think that has, is, is responsible for getting us where we are today as a country and for um, putting the church in the position that it now finds itself, right? They, we all have agency, each and every one of us. We're all constrained in different ways, um, but I think there hasn't been a lot of courage. And so I think that now is absolutely a time, particularly for white Christians, <laughs> to uh, put a little on the line. Uh, it might be a job, all right. It might be um, it might be a paycheck. It might be followers in social media, um, but this is very much a moment where it, it's going to require people to step up. Um, so, th so that's one thing I would say that I think we could do better. And then beyond that, it gets really difficult, right? It, it's um, because really, I think what what we are looking at is. Um, a, a pretty some pretty extensive deconstruction of um, complicity is far reaching here, and and so what does that look like in organizations and in institutions, um, and do we dismantle institutions, and if so, can we rebuild new ones? How do we rebuild those? How do we do that if we alienate? all of our donors, um, but maybe we don't, maybe we find new ones, right? These are the questions that I hear people asking quietly right now. And then a few people more boldly um, and, and risking a lot um, to ask some of these questions and then to act. Okay, so my mom asked me a, uh, a strange question a couple of weeks ago. And we were talking about, I was talking about at my kids, uh, my son's soccer game, I was talking about the irresponsibility of our president in his response to when he got COVID. And I, I was sitting here having a conversation with my mother, another flabbergasted conversation after years of flabbergasted conversations. <clears throat> and, I, and I'm sick of these talks. I'm sick of talking about this man. I don't want to talk about him anymore. But here I am again. And my mom asked me this kind of question. She, it was like she, she had this prior realization. She, she said, Are you, do you think that when we elected this man, that we elected your father? 
And I said, yes, you, yes, that's why I, I, that's one of the reasons this national nightmare is so horrific to me is because yes, I have daddy issues. I have emotional trauma from my own upbringing. And I don't necessarily mean to get into that too much, but my life as a man and as a pastor has been a response to the trauma that I experienced as a young boy. And that's why I can't believe that we allowed this to happen. And so I think, I think there's, I think there's many men in our gener in my generation that would say the same thing and women. Um, I have a really, I have a good friend, one of my wife's good friends and we go to church together that she is really struggling with her own uh, abusive pastoral and abusive parental situations. And so I think maybe as I, as I try to reimagine what the future looks like, I am living in as a, as a response to that, which is to not hold so tightly, to not control others. And as a man, to give away my power. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm preaching now, but, uh, but yeah. your, your first, your first book is about a Christian understanding of feminism. So how do yeah. you speak about this in terms as a woman and as a, as a leader in academia? Yeah. First, let me just affirm your response, um, because I'm hearing from many um, women and men um, for whom this book touches just really deeply their their um, kind of emotional journey um, and their personal history, particularly those who have suffered abuse, um, sexual abuse, abuses of power. Um, and you know, I, I regularly get letters from people who, who say, you know, I'm writing you with tears streaming down my face. And the book is not comforting in, in terms of the content, right? It's horrifying. But I think there has been something comforting to many readers to understand, to see clearly for the first time and to understand that what they experienced was part of something larger. All right. It was not just them. It was not their you know, unlucky situation that they were running up against this very powerful ideology and networks and alliances and and that they should not blame themselves. Uh, right. And that they're. Um, they really are victims and survivors in this. And so many women in particular, I think, have um, really struggled with uh, evangelical support for this president and for his administration. You know, those who have um, suffered um, uh, sexual abuse in particular. So so this is a deeply personal um, story. Um, and uh, it, it's one that I think many people respond to quite emotionally and, and viscerally. Um, so yes, my, my first book is on um, historical Christian feminism, and that did give me eyes to see uh, this topic in, um, in ways that I think a lot of other scholars of evangelicalism uh, really didn't have. They, um, or I will say, by studying uh, kind of orthodox Christian feminists in uh, the late 19th, early 20th century, so long before, you know, any sins of second wave feminism, uh, at least in the eyes of conservative evangelicals, uh, I, I came to read some really powerful um, uh, interpretations of the scriptures, especially by Catherine Bushnell, the subject of my book. And actually her writing did lead me to rethink patriarchy, um, to rethink complementarianism. It wasn't called it back in her day, but she was running up against it as well. And she was actually an anti-trafficking activist in the late 19th century and dealt with um, um, 
repeatedly Christian men, respectable Christian men, white Christian men who were um, abusing women horrifically, and then their communities, respectable Christians who were condoning the abuse of these women in brothels. Um, and then she, she did her reform work in the British Empire. So here it was very stark, white Christian, civilized British men who were abusing Indian women in, in just horrifying ways and, and Asian women, uh, East Asian women. And so she ended up coming back to theology and concluded that the crime is the fruit of the theology. And she discovered these patterns of mistranslation that pro uh, really propped up patriarchy and she argued distorted the actual word of God. And she knew Hebrew and Greek, and she retranslated portions of the scriptures um, to undo this, this damage. And it was actually her work that um, changed my thinking on patriarchy and complementarianism. Before I was more like, you know, not my not my cup of tea, but you know, it's 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 a you know, there's biblical evidence, kind of faithful Christian interpretation can bring you both ways. And she concluded in the end, um, after meticulous scriptural examination, that ultimately patriarchy is, um, is a distortion of the scriptures and it is a distortion of the work of Christ because Christ, um, what was so revolutionary about uh, the Christian gospel is that Jesus, that God became man, divested himself of power. And that is the model of the Christian gospels. That is at the heart of the Christian faith. So why on earth would Christian men seek to claim power for themselves over women, over other people? That is absolutely contradictory to the gospel. And I have to say, I think she made a pretty compelling case. And that has kind of stayed with me. I still allow that, you know, there are many people who firmly believe that um, patriarchy, um, and, you know, complementary and gender roles are, you know, faithful to the scriptures. Um, but there's a part of me that that is also, you know, quite critical of that and, and thinks that that does potentially go against the, the heart of the, the Christian message. Mm -hmm. and, and there's a relation there to, to politics, which is there's this, I don't know, kind of quip that's come up in, in recent years, which is uh, some people would say we need to follow the Sermon on the Mount. We need to follow the Beatitudes. And then perhaps the, the masculine response to that is, well, you can't run a government with the Sermon on the Mount. Yes. And, yes. and my response to that is, well, then maybe you shouldn't run a government. Maybe we, <laughs> maybe exactly. we should think this. Yeah. Uh, well, so yeah. another thing that surprised me um, in this research that I did not expect to find when I started off was just how much you know, ideals of gender, masculinity and fem femininity were connected to a very authoritarian um, understanding of society, right? Within families, that's kind of clear. You have patriarchal authority, but with people like Bill Gothard, and then more popular, um, you know, more mainstream applications of this, um, the idea that, you know, all of society was structured around a hierarchical God-ordained authority. And so women and children submit to men and the men submit to their pastors and to their God-ordained governing officials. So that doesn't really apply to Barack Obama, but it absolutely applies to Donald Trump, right? You know, kind of this, this very authoritarian. And what surprised me was, was really um, anti-democratic um, understanding of, of society. 
And, um, and, and I started to see that again in my research. And now I think we are, we are seeing what that looks like at a time when many of our democratic, uh, institutions and norms are eroding, um, very quickly. And I have little confidence that white evangelicals who have been steeped in this kind of authoritarian understanding of how God has supposedly ordered his world. Um, I have very little hope that they are, they are going to take a strong stand um, against uh, this, this kind of slide towards authoritarianism that, that I do think we are, we are on the brink of uh, right, right now in, you know, October, 2020. And from a, a almost a theocratic perspective, that kind of leadership is just is just what's necessary. Exactly, exactly. The ends will justify the means, uh, right? And this is how how God can can do His work. And um, and yeah, you you need to you need to take take things by force because you cannot trust the other, right? You cannot trust if we have God's truth, then anybody outside of our fold, whether it's our political fold, our, you know, local congregation, even in the case of somebody like Mark Driscoll, right? They are not to be trusted. They are not our neighbor. They are, they are likely to be perceived as our enemy and we need to defend against them. And we can't just sit around and wait for the attack. We need preemptive attack preemptive war. And this is really a consistent, this is what militancy does. And this embrace of militancy um, has really, really, well, you know, to, to quote my subtitle, corrupted the faith. It has, it has set up this us versus them mentality uh, that has no space for conceptions of the common good and, and no sense for, no space for, you know, the, the great commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. Are are you a political historian, or how, where do you where do you consider your field? Where does it lie? No, my field originally was uh, so I'm a U.S. historian by training with an emphasis on gender and religion. Uh, so 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 that's really the lens I took to this, and I wanted to understand uh, you know evangelical gender ideals. But as somebody trained in gender um, analysis. I um, had the eyes to see immediately that gender is always linked to economic shifts. It's always linked to ideas of the nation. It's always linked to broader issues, foreign policy. And so I'm, I'm trained really as a cultural historian. So to see the interplay of all of these ideas and politics is certainly a part of that, um, but it, I, I wasn't trained narrowly as a political historian. So, so in light of that, I, I have a, a question about femininity that I'm, I'm curious what, what your response to it is. I, I think in recent years, this, this actually gets us back into film a little bit into to cultural depictions of women. I think there's been a lot of, depending on what you're paying attention to, a mm -hmm. lot of uh, female empowerment in film. Um, I think of Rey um, in, in the Star Wars films, uh, uh -huh. who I love. Uh, and there's many, many other depictions that we could see, especially like on t television shows, which we kind of have some very well done television shows in, in today's world. What What is coming as, in, as far as femininity, femininity is concerned? As someone who is a nonviolent proponent, I see another cultural narrative arising, which is, hey, women can be just as violent too, don't you know? And we can, we can show command. And I, I look at that and I go, well, I like the women, I like the women heroes. I like that. But mm -hmm. I'm like going, wait, they're killing everybody too. <laughs> or, right. and, and so I'm curious, I'm curious what your perspective on, on where is our, our culture's understanding of, of, of women going? 
Yeah, that's a big question. I'm not sure um, I have the best answer to culture more generally. I keep a, a really close eye on on uh, you know kind of Christian cultural expressions and Christian responses. Um, so I mean, I think we've had this uh, kind of a violent um, female heroine um, for for quite a while. I mean, I guess we could go back to Kill Bill, or I'm not sure where where we want to start. Um, so I should have mentioned Kill Bill, yeah, yeah. yeah so, so I mean, there's there's an option there, but yeah, Wonder Woman, and you know, kind of kind of playing on on that trope. What I see a lot more of, um, and more broadly embraced within Christian culture is uh, a kind of redefined understanding of female power. Um, maybe not so much on screen, but very much in their writings, um, which I, I see as a kind of embrace of post-feminism. And so it's kind of taking the claims of feminists uh, that you know we need to empower women and redefining what that empowerment looks like. So it's not liberal feminism. It's not through rights. Uh, it's not you know through careers. It's not through kind of the ways that liberal feminists have traditionally defined um, women's rights and female empowerment. It's through this kind of post-feminist ideal, this girl power. Girls can do anything and we can look great while we do it. You know, this, this kind of beauty is power. And um, this, is, this is very much a motif of conservative Republican womanhood too. Um, you know, and Phyllis Schlafly, I mean, kind of invented this in, in some ways, right? You know, come on, feminist, look at me. I didn't need feminism to get where I am. And, and, you know, thank you to my husband for letting me speak here today. And, you know, the perfectly coiffed hair and the pearls and the, right. And so it's kind of claiming the rhetoric of, of feminism and of power, but completely subverting uh, what that means, what that looks like. And I think that, um, that's what I see an awful lot of right now in Christian circles and in Christian popular culture. Uh, that you, know, so you can read a book by Sadie Robertson of the Duck Dynasty clan, right? And it's all about you know, like power. Um, women, you know, girls, you claim your power and don't be afraid. And, you know, and it's just, um, but, but then you have to, you know, as a, as a historian, I say, um, okay, well, how do you define power, right? What does power look like? Is there is there a structural element here? What is it? No, there isn't. Um, so that's really the kind of tendency that I see um, that that is really confusing to people because on the surface it looks like they're they're feminists, um, but they're really saying and meaning very different things by that language. So in order to stay within the conservative churches, they have to play by those kinds of rules in, in a sense. Yeah, and then it ends up subverting feminism, right? Because then conservatives love to say, "Well, look at our women, right? <laughs> look at, well, look at, uh, at Amy Coney Barrett, it, you know, right? So she's a mom, and who does the laundry? And she has all those kids, and isn't that awesome? And you know, she wears this bright pink dress to her hearing, and she's she can have it all without the advantages of feminism, right? Without the rights, without, uh, you know, like we we have what we need, and so there's a there's a, you know, and look at our women are even more powerful um, by taking this path. And so, yes, yeah, staying within conservative um, 
uh, kind of constraints, but then really elevating the few women who kind of can be held up as, see, you can have it all. You can, you can do everything, even when most women are um, discouraged from pursuing those, uh, those avenues and are really, you know, kind of held back by, by the structural religious and economic constraints. Because mm -hmm. so then the opposite happens for women that come into their own and realize, I don't think I want to be a part of this anymore. And so then you have women like Rachel Held Evans or uh, Nadia Boltz Weber. I mean, I mean, I'm only raising up icons in the sense of those that are most culturally prevalent because yeah. then they they go off in what would be called liberal or progressive churches and yes. they, don't, they don't have a place because they're not the good women anymore. Yes. Exactly. And so, so many women feel, feel that tension, you know, um, so can I stay where I would like to stay? Can I stay in my community? Um, uh, or, or can I be honest with who I am? I know so many women who feel like in their, in their hometowns, in their churches, uh, in their communities, that they really have to hide their views, hide their dreams, hide who they are. I've experienced that myself, you know, attending a, a, a not very progressive church for a time and, you know, absolutely not feeling comfortable bringing my whole person into that space. You know, I was only ever asked to serve in the nursery. Uh, I was, uh, you know, I was asked many times by older women, well, who looks after your children when you work? You know, that those kinds of questions that women are very attuned to, you know, hearing and interpreting and, uh, you know, questioning, you know, whether you really fit, um, whether, whether you're really doing it right. And again, men have their own versions of those, but I think that women, um, Christian women, very often run up against these unspoken and then sometimes very clearly spoken rules of what faithful Christian femininity really looks like. And it's all, it's a very domestic ideal and, and one in which, you know, beauty is highly prized, sweetness, um, submission, things like that, yeah. which is hard. As you were talking and, and I'm, I'm sitting here realizing, okay, am I being faithful to the political podcast that I'm on. Yeah. And, and I was thinking, okay, we're, we're kind of just talking all about the church. And I, and I've asked, I'm, I'm really interested in feminine studies. Um, and I have, I have several books waiting on my shelves right now that I want to get to like, um, powers and submissions by Coakley. I don't know if you've ever read that, mm -hmm. but as you were talking, I'm like going, this is all political. <laughs> it, is. it is absolutely political. Yes. Yeah. 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 So these ideas of gender, right? These, these ideals of what does it mean to be a Christian man? What does it be a, mean to be a Christian woman? Very much shape our understanding of, you know, political affiliation, this cultural identity. I mean, that's really where it comes together, this cultural identity. So when you look out and you, and you, and you watch, you know, Duck Dynasty on TV, or you watch, you know, uh, or, or you, you run across somebody you haven't met before, or you walk through your Hobby Lobby store, right? You know, it, what, um, what kind of cultural identity is being communicated and do you identify with that or do you find that repulsive? Right. And, and so, and, and then the way things work is uh, okay. If you share that cultural identity, there's a very good chance that you're going to share a political identity as well. And that you're going to express that cultural identity, your cultural value system through some pretty clear political choices. So yes, the personal is always political. Uh, it wasn't just for feminists in the 1970s. I think it is even more so today. So which party seems to affirm your identity 
And if it's as a Christian woman and you have decided that to be faithful means to embrace a domestic role, means to you know submit to masculine authority, uh, which party is is it seems to um, uh, not just express those values, but affirm who you are for the choices you've made, whether those were actual choices or whether it was coerced, uh, you know, or very limited choices in all likelihood. Um, and then the same is true on the flip side, right? So cultural identity is absolutely at the heart of, of political affiliation right now of political activism. And I mean, survey after survey, um, uh, affirms that. Politically, it's interesting. There's kind of a parallel between the classes and between the genders in the sense of many people would say that that the GOP or Donald Trump himself, he doesn't serve the, the middle to lower classes. They just think he does. And it's the same thing with like women. They want they want this strong man. But uh, there's a parallel like we're just in this abusive relationship. <laughs> A, 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 a national abusive relationship. And uh, I don't know. Yeah. And again, people, people, people will hear what we're talking about right now. And they're thinking, oh, well, they haven't, they haven't said Joe Biden. And, and, and maybe they'll hear this after the election. And who knows how long the results will drag out and all of that kind of thing. But I, that's not what I'm at. I'm not saying vote for Joe Biden. That's not what I'm saying. We're talking about how we um, how we look at our leaders and what the type of leader that we want. I mean, mm -hmm. many people are to, to speak of Joe Biden. Many people are saying, "Look at he's a weak man. He look at how weak he is," and that's that's been part of the rhetoric. Right, exactly. I mean, last week the you know Republicans tried to pillory Joe Joe Biden by showing him as a loving father and you know Mr. Rogers type. And yeah, Mr. Rogers does not come off well in the literature on Christian masculinity, right? He's he's the foil. He's the he's the emasculated man. Do not be like you know Mr. Rogers or Mother Teresa. You got to be like William Wallace and you know flay your enemies. And so, uh, so yeah, so we do have different ideals of, of leadership and, you know, there, there were many different ideals in the, within the Republican party as recently as 2016. I mean, if you want to look at the Republican primary, we had a lot of different ideals of masculinity on, on the, that primary stage. Um, what happened was, uh, you know, I would say Ted Cruz was the closest to Donald Trump's kind of militant masculinity. And um, uh, not coincidentally, if you look at Cruz's religious background, frankly, but then what we saw happening was a lot of uh, other Republicans who did not actually like embody that militancy, certainly not personally, men like Marco Rubio, for example, who, who saw which way the wind was blowing, saw that Trump was really changing the rules of the game and tried to you know, out bully Trump and you're going to lose, <laughs> you're going to lose if that's it. And they look like fools. Um, and so they gave away what integrity they may have had on the debate stage and, you know, and within the primary and, and, and Trump could out bully all of them um, because he simply had no, no restraint. And, and so it was really fascinating to watch that all play out and to watch white evangelicals um, watch that play out and decide that Trump was their guy as they did. You know, it really came down to Trump or Cruz for them. Uh, again, tellingly that the two like kind of best exemplars of this militant masculinity and then decided that Trump was the best. 
and the language that they used during that time. You know, Robert Jeffress, um, one of his earliest, Trump's earliest evangelical supporters, Pastor Jeffress um, from First Baptist Dallas. I want the meanest, toughest son of a you-know-what in that role. And I think that's where many evangelicals are. And over and over again, evangelicals talking about we need a strong protector. We need, you know, uh, this is not the time for political correctness. This is not the time for gentleness. This is not the time for, you know, fill in the blank with your favorite virtue. Uh, this is the time, this is war. And, and that's where you have men like Donald Trump and to look to the title of my book, um, you know, John Wayne were precisely the men who were needed in these moments of crisis because they hadn't been formed by traditional Christian virtues, right? And so they were unrestrained. They were ready to use violence. They would, they were gonna be crass. They were gonna be reckless, but, and they were filled with testosterone and, and that's, you know, and God will bless us through them. And so, so that's what was so fascinating. And that's why, you know, although it on the surface seemed like a betrayal of evangelical values to support somebody like what, like Donald Trump, uh, in some ways it makes perfect sense once you understand this longer history. So as we wrap up, I, I have a, a question more about you and in, in your role and in, in what you do. So you know, as I'm reading through your book, I'm thinking about all the, the sources that you had to pour through and the countless hours, whether it be through print media or just, you know, watching sermons or, you know, different uh, conventions and conferences. How, how do you get by? Like, how do you, how do you immerse yourself in this and yet still have hope or still take care of your own spiritual and emotional well-being? What, like, do you have any, any process for that for yourself? I had the amazing assistance of three student researchers uh, to research this book, and actually four if you go way back to when it started 15 years ago. Um, and they have sustained me. We were a community. We, you know, I would check in with them regularly, apologize for what I was making them read, and say, you know, if you're not okay with this, really, some of this stuff was so ugly. And so we were kind of the support group and a just huge shout out to my student researchers. They were absolutely amazing. And um, most of them actually came from within um, uh, the subculture, um, quite deep within actually, and had a lot of insight that they brought to this. And so, you know, community really helped and just checking in and kind of, you know, being a moral compass for each other, like this is really not okay, right? Right, okay, yes. Um, but then the writing process itself was cathartic. Right, because I had been watching this for for almost two decades. I'd been tracking this. I'd been growing increasingly disturbed by what I was seeing and how it was manifesting uh, in local congregations and also nationally. And so it really did feel empowering to put it all on paper, um, to kind of um, sort through things, uh, to connect the dots, and then to really hold it up for all to see. Um, so that we can together communally examine this, right? As Christians, as Americans, as interested, you know, observers, is this okay? Um, is or or do we need to do something here? And so the writing process itself was largely cathartic, um, with the exception of the final chapter on abuse. That was grueling to write, grueling to research, to edit um, every read through down to the very last, you know, copy edit. I had to brace myself. I hated that chapter, um, but I knew it needed to be in the book. So, um, so that was that was a hard a hard process. Um, when I finished the book, I did not have much hope at all. 
Um, and I've, I've told this before, but my editor right came back and he was like, okay, you got to give us something here, Kristen, <laughs> we need something. And I, I thought about it and I said, I, I've got nothing. Right. Uh, by the end of this story, I saw just how deeply entrenched this ideology was. And then he's like, okay, I respect that. And then three days later, he came back. Okay, no, 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 just give us something. Can you give us anything? And that's that's when I gave him the last sentence of the book, um, which which really felt too feeble at the time. And it was what was once done can also be undone. That's kind of where we started, right? My role as a historian uh, is if you can show that none of this was inevitable, that all of this as entrenched as it is came about through specific choices made by specific people with personal motivations, usually enhancing their own power. Um, and that's how we got to where we are now. Then we might be in a place where we can think about undoing it. And, and so that's really, if there's hope, it's in exposing this. Um, and then what we do next um, is, is really up to us. Well, thank you for being bold enough to write something like this. Thank you. And thanks for your time here today. Oh, it was great. Thanks for the conversation. To further support the show, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media and learn more about Tenth Theology at www.tenththeology.com. Thank you for joining us and God bless everyone.